Today's reading is from Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who, bear, who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed by the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you at, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, this morning we are continuing in the book of Ephesians. It's something we've been in for months now. We started in January and we're going to be continuing in this through, I believe, October, possibly November. Um, we're really trying to take our time in this because this book is so rich in um, in kind of what it has to say, I think, to the church today. In a bigger sense, the, the book of Ephesians is broken down into kind of two big sections, and we've completed the first section already. And at the heart of it is about basically the cosmic victory that God has accomplished. That God has defeated sin and death. He has overcome the, the powers of darkness, the powers of evil, and in grace has given salvation to his people. First part is really an understanding and look at what it means that God has accomplished that victory and what our identity as the church is in that. And that's really kind of chapters 1 through 3. As we step into chapters 4, there's, there's a shift that happens in the way Paul is talking about this. And it's not because he's talking about something different. He's talking more about the result of what he's already talked about. In light of the fact that God has accomplished this victory, in light of the fact that through his grace he has brought his people into this reality, into this community of the church, how then should we live together? And that's what we're going to be really taking a look at, not just in this kind of subsection as we look at four. Uh, 25 through 32 over the next few weeks, but just really kind of through the end of the chapter, what does it mean to be a Christian living in the church in light of the victorious grace of God? And in this section that was just read, he kind of focuses in on some specific realities of what it means to live in relationship with one another. Frank last week I think did a really good job kind of, kind of giving you an outline and an overview of everything, all the various topics that are talked about in this. And before we focus in on the specific two verses that we're going to be talking about today, I kind of want to bring this back up. It's something he did last week. And we won't dwell on it, but I, I just kind of want to put this before you of all the things that we're going to see. First, that it tells us to be wary of anger that leads to sin. It says to practice self-awareness and discipline when anger arises. It says to be, always be ready for Satan to strike, even when it seems unlikely. It tells us don't steal, to embrace work because we were created for it, to be generously aware of others, to be skillful, careful, and discerning in what you say, to be an encourager, to understand context and decorum, to spread grace, to live in deference to the Holy Spirit, to remember who you are in Christ, to excavate the root of your frustration and put it away to care about and be useful to others. It says, though it is easier and often more rational to have a hard heart, embrace a soft heart, and then again, remember who you are in Christ. And it might seem like these are all just very kind of random, really good things to hear. But what brings them together is that this is all the result of the new life that we have in Christ. Paul has talked about how we have put the old self off and we've taken on this new self, this idea of taking off the old dirty rags of our old life and putting on this new clothing that we have. 
this new identity, this new personhood that we have that is not just defined by who we are individually, but by who we are collectively as a church. So that's drawing all these things together. And more specifically, it's something that's said right at the beginning of 425, right at the beginning of this section. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And this is the part that I think draws them all together. It says, for we are members one of another. The reason all of this stuff matters, the reason why we need to work through what it means to speak truth, the reason why, like today, we need to talk about anger, is because we are members one of another. We are a part of this community. What happens to you happens to all of us. The actions that I take affect everybody because God has brought us into a family, into one spirit, into one body, to where we can't just live the Christian life on our own. And if that's true, then we need to deal with the realities of what it means to live in community with one another. And that's what Paul is working through in this section. What does it mean to live as members one of another? Today we're going to focus in on verse 26 and 27. And it says this, and it's not up on the screen, but we'll be walking through it. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I'm going to get a little uh, nerdy here for a second. If you were to look at this in the Greek, this is a ver- two verses that are comprised of four Greek imperatives. If you know anything about an imperative, it's basically just a command. It's a fancy word for a command. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's kind of put in a position where we understand he's not, there's not like an implied subject or anything like that. It's somebody telling you to do something. There's just four of them right in a row. And they could all stand on their own, and they all in some ways should stand on their own, but they're all related to each other. They all help explain each other. And so what I want to do for the rest of this time is actually to just to look individually at these imperatives. Because I think that as we look at these, I think we'll uncover something that is essential to understanding what it means that we are members one of another and how do we live in the new life that is in Christ. So these four Greek imperatives are this. The first is be angry. Let that sink in. Be angry. Yes, we will talk more about this. But it says to be angry. Second, do not sin. To be honest, the first seems a little easier. The third, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the fourth, don't give a place for the devil. And the reason I use the word place here, even though it says opportunity there, is the word in Greek is the word tapos, which is what we get, topography, all of that stuff. It's really, don't, don't leave an opportunity for the devil to move in and have a place in your life. Have a position. So let's look at these. Let's talk about this. And let's talk about the one that probably caught our attention the most, which is the first one, which is what Paul talks about. And it simply says, be angry. And the reason why I think that doesn't sit with us and why we, we're probably thinking that can't be what he means Paul can't be telling us to just be angry is because I think so oftentimes we have a misunderstanding of the nature of anger and how it fits into real life and how it even fits into the Christian life. I'm going to put a definition of anger that I came up with um, up on the screen that I think will help us. Anger is the natural God-made response to injustice. Anger is the natural God-made response to injustice. You'll hear me use this uh, um, illustration throughout the sermon, but I think it's important to think of it like pain. Anger is like pain. We can't help that we feel pain. If we cut our finger, if we stub our toe, if we run into something, we feel it. God made it so we feel these things because that is an indication, hey, something's wrong, you need to deal with it. If you slice your finger with a knife, it's important that you feel that that happened because if you don't deal with it, more damage can happen. Anger 
is a God-given response to injustice. When we feel angry, that means that we have felt injustice. Now, we'll talk about whether or not the injustice was legitimate or not. That's fair to ask. But we have felt injustice. And what Paul is saying here is that we need to allow that God-given natural thing to actually take place in our lives if we are to deal honestly in relationship with one another. Now, there are different types of anger. So don't get me wrong. There are different ways that this manifests. And I've kind of tried to summarize them up here of the different ways and tried to help explain them. The first is that there is a righteous anger. And I think we all kind of understand what a righteous anger is. It's a reaction to an injustice done to someone else to God's glory, and or his kingdom. It is something when we feel anger because some injustice has happened to some, somebody else, something else, or to God and what he's trying to do. That is a righteous anger. We also, I think, feel things like justified anger. I'm calling it justified anger. This is when somebody legitimately does something wrong to you. When you have legitimately been harmed by somebody else, whether it's physically, emotionally, Somebody has done something terrible to you. That is a justified anger. It makes sense that you're angry. You have felt an injustice and are responding appropriately to it. That is a justified anger. And then there's the last one, uh, selfish anger. That's basically when someone or something messes with your kingdom vision. It's when somebody messes with something that you would like to be doing something that you feel you're entitled to, that they're messing with, they're keeping you from. It is an anger that is derived as we root it out in selfishness. And what's interesting is I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, we experience all three of these types of anger all the time. You know, one of the things that I think I, I, I would call a righteous anger that I feel on a regular basis is when things happen to kids. I just can't stand it when things happen that are unfair and unjust to kids. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's abortion, whether it's families being separated, whether it's uh, the realities of the foster care system, all of those things. I just get angry by it. It makes me so mad that this is a reality of our world. And I feel that. And then in the same day, I can feel something like that, and then I can go to lunch with somebody or being in a phone call with somebody, or emailing somebody, and they can say something that's just really mean, legitimately mean. And I can feel that, and it's a justified anger. Then after all of that's done, after I felt the righteous anger and the justified anger, I can go home and I can step on a Lego, and I can be so angry that my kids would sabotage my foot like that. And all of this can happen in the same day. I can feel all three types of anger, whether I'm feeling angry because terrible things happen to children in this world, and that's not the way God would like it to happen. I can feel angry because somebody who I thought cared for me said something that was not very caring to me, or because I'm in fear for my life because my kids left Legos out, and my vision, my kingdom vision of my world is a floor free of Legos. I can feel anger for all of those things. And it's important that we do talk about and figure out what kind of anger we're feeling, which is, I think, going to be really important as we look at the second Greek imperative. But before we do, it's imp- I think it's important to note that Paul, although he recognizes, and we know from his other writings, that he recognizes that all three of these different types of anger exist, he makes absolutely no distinction in this verse. He's not saying, be, have, have righteous anger. Be righteously anger, angry. He's not saying, be justifiably angry. He's just saying, be angry. We, if we are going to be living as members of one another in an unjust world, we need to have the freedom to be angry, to feel these things, to express them. 
Anger is literally the same thing as you stubbing your toe and saying, ow, that hurt. That moment when you feel that thing, that's anger. And if we were going to be living honestly with one another, we need to allow that to happen in our lives. I think that this is one of the, the, the I think, most frustrating aspects about how we oftentimes talk about anger, specifically even within the church. Because I think that what we think it means to be righteous is to be not angry. That we kind of namaste our problems. We can just kind of ignore them. We say it's fine. You know, one of the diseases that, are still, that is still real and happens today, but we kind of see a lot more actually through the Bible, is the, the um, uh, disease called leprosy. And what's interesting about leprosy, what it does is ultimately is it, it is a nerve disease. It is, basically makes it so your nerves stop working. So when people die from leprosy, it's not oftentimes, it's not always because of the actual disease. It's because they've stopped feeling things in their arm and they're chopping broccoli or something like that and cut their finger off and they don't realize it. And they get infected. They don't do what they're supposed to do with it. When we say, hey, what it means to be godly is to just not be angry, we're calling people to emotional leprosy. And that is not healthy. We're calling people to be, have emotional leprosy. We're telling people to not feel something that they naturally feel. And what that ultimately creates, for one, is the inability to deal with the injustice. Just like pain, when things like this happen, it's because something else has happened too. It is an indication that something else is going on. And like pain, we should figure out what's causing it. And if we, don't, if we just ignore anger and try to pretend like it's not real, we just kind of suck it up and deal with it, don't communicate it, don't allow it to actually happen, then whatever that is that's causing it will just do more damage in our lives. So that's one reason why Paul starts by just saying, be angry. In relationship to one another, allow yourself to be angry. The second is the inability to actually express anger creates a dishonesty. I think this is something that I've really had to uh, work through even in my own prayer life. Is that times when I'm legitimately feeling angry, for even illegitimate reasons, I'm afraid to talk to God about it. Because I'm making the choice that I would rather not offend God than be honest with Him. Which if you think about that, how terrible is that? I would say dishonesty is way more offensive to God than not bringing our problems to Him. And it's the same with us. We don't allow anger to be communicated. We are being dishonest with one another. And going back to what was said right beforehand, he said, speak the truth with one another. Don't let lies flourish within your relationships. So to not be angry is to not be honest. We are surrounded by injustice. And we need to allow that to happen. I always think of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a... Is a is a um, psalm that David wrote in response to being chased all the time and being within an inch of his life all the time by Saul. And it starts with him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We call these lament psalms, and I think appropriately lament psalms, but these are also angry psalms. David, at the time of writing that, was not just sad, but he was angry. Now, you might recognize those words, but maybe not from Psalm 22. Another person in the Bible said those words. Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross, Jesus, while he is experiencing the greatest injustice that has ever happened in the world, how did Jesus feel at the time? Angry. That might seem offensive to us, but for him to feel anything but that in the moment would be dishonest. And he communicates that when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, Jesus, in the moment, is angry. 
Paul is telling us we need to feel the freedom to be angry. If we were to honestly work within the confines of this body, then we need to be honest with the emotional response to the injustice around us. Now, I think it's important to note that he doesn't qualify this. And this is going to be something that we talk about more. But I want to make sure I remind you that Paul is not qualifying this. He's just saying be angry, whether it's legitimate or not. It's the next part that he begins to kind of talk about, well, how do we deal with the reality that there is some anger that is righteous and some anger that is not? And the way these phrases are combined, it's not something that is negating or even kind of subverting the first phrase. It is a basic conjunction, if you know anything about grammar. It's not a disjunctive unit. It's, these are two phrases that stand on their own, that mean what they mean in their own context. So he's saying, be angry, be angry, be angry. And then he says, and do not sin. So let's talk about what that means. Because <laughs> I think these are hard to reconcile, and I think, but I think it's important that we reconcile them appropriately. Anger is something that happens when we experience injustice or when we experience even a perceived injustice. Anger is something that happens. And just like pain, it's important that after we experience anger, we do something about it. Um, when we were in Preaching Collective, which is something we do, we gather as kind of all the pastors of redemption that are preaching these passages. We'll talk about this. Uh, Luke Simmons, who is one of the pastors at Redemption Gateway, said this phrase about how we deal with anger. How do we root out the sin that can kind of grow in anger? He says, first we need to diagnose it, and second, we need to interrogate it. And I love that he used the word interrogate. Because interrogate means that we're asking the questions that we don't want the answers to, necessarily. We're not just questioning our motives, we're interrogating our motives. And this is a habit that I think we should do every single time we get angry. There's uh, four actual questions, two sets of questions that I think will help us in making sure that this anger does not grow into sin. Whenever we feel angry, regardless of what it is, these are two questions that we should ask ourselves. First is what caused the anger? Another way of putting that is what was the injustice? If anger is the natural God-given response to injustice, then we have to ask ourselves, what was, in fact, the injustice? What are we responding to? Why do we feel the way we feel? We need to diagnose it. What's causing this? And after we kind of determine that, we ask the second question. What did I do with the anger? Did I resolve the injustice? Or did I create more injustice with my response? It was about probably a year ago. Uh, it might have actually, no, I think it was six months ago because I think my daughter was just born, um, which means we were already in a crazy world um, the week after our baby was born. My three older boys uh, are boys, and they love to slam the back door. It's not because they're angry. It's not because of any other reason, but they're boys and they just do things like that. They'll slam the back door, and it drives me crazy. Um, and we have, like, these window panes within the back door, and I've had to, like, jerry-rig, like, nails to kind of keep the panes from falling out, do all these different things. They did it to a point where it literally broke the handle of our door. They had done it so many times. And so this, about a week afterwards, it got to the point where literally we couldn't shut our door. Like, it, did, it just didn't work anymore. And so I'm like, I should fix this. Um, and so I'm already frustrated that this is something that happened. Then I have to go to the store and spend money that I wasn't wanting to spend on buying a new door handle. I come home and I'm having to install this. So I'm already not doing well. Let's just say that. I'm not in a great place to receive a whole lot of anything. So I'm doing this pretty frustrated. I'm tired. Um, I'm angry. Let's just say that. I'm angry that I'm having to do this. Then my oldest son, they had just gotten, I think, a, a basketball or something like that that came with this pump that when you pushed it, you know, air would come out, which is what a pump does. And so my son, thinking, hey, this will be interesting, decided, 
he's going to fill this pump up with water, and then while I'm doing this work that I didn't want to be doing with the money that I wanted, didn't want to be spending, decided I'm going to go spray my dad. I wonder how that's going to go. So not only did he do that, but he sprayed me directly in the eye. It hurt so bad. And let's just say I got angry. I listened very well to the first part of what Paul said. I was angry. And I'm not sure if my son has ever seen me more angry than that moment. And I also, like, I get really angry when I get hurt. I don't know if that's, like, you, like, if I stub my toe, like, I am livid at the chair. Like, I'm so mad. And so you combine all of these things. This wasn't a good moment for my eldest, okay? And I do this. And in the moment, I felt very justified, I just spent money on something I didn't want to spend money on, time doing something I didn't feel like I should have had to be doing. I got wet when I didn't want to get wet, and it went in my eye, which really hurt. I felt incredibly justified in my anger, and I let him know that I was angry. So all that happens, I calm down, and I begin to ask myself these questions. I I start with the first one. What caused the anger? Well, at first I was like, well, my son sprayed me in the eye. Of course I'm angry. And I thought a little bit more. I interrogated it. What was the injustice? The first injustice is that my kids were children. <laughs> Incredible travesty. My kids were acting like they were children. So that was the first injustice. The second injustice is my son is curious and playful. That was the second great injustice. Um, And so as I'm thinking this through, as I'm kind of teasing this out, as I'm interrogating, I'm realizing maybe that wasn't really a justified response. That the real injustice that happened to me was that my day, I envisioned going a different way. And all of these people in my life ruined it for me. I wasn't supposed to be doing any of those things, and all of a sudden, I'm having to do those things, and I'm angry about it, and that's why I blew up. It had nothing to do with the fact that I was fixing a door. It had nothing to do with the fact that my son sprayed me. He didn't mean to spray me in the eye, and so I did that, and then I asked the second question, which after I had answered the first question, I didn't really want to ask the second question. I asked, well, what did I do with the anger? Did I resolve the injustice, or did I create more injustice? I think one of the really hard realities of that moment and so many of parenting moments is as I thought it through more, I realized that the real injustice that happened was that Kyler's six-foot-one, 200-pound dad yelled at him for being curious. That is actually unjust. <clears throat> and so after all this stuff, after I've diagnosed and interrogated this anger that I felt and that I Really, I, at the time and in the moment, couldn't help but feel. I did that, and I realized, okay, well, I did something wrong. I sinned in this moment, and I need to make it right. So I came to Kyler. I said, look, there is no justification for how I acted. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I think he listened for a second and moved on and sprayed somebody else with water. <laughs> Actually, I think we took that thing in and threw it in the trash. That, uh, that air pump did not exist in our house after that. And this is what I'm talking about. This stuff happens all the time. And the fact that it happens all the time makes sense. We live in an unjust world, whether it's perceived injustice or real injustice. We feel injustice all the time. And we respond to it. Paul is not saying to ignore that reality, but what he is saying is that we need to diagnose and interrogate it when it happens. We need to get to the root of it. What's causing it? Did I respond appropriately? Because that's when sin begins to creep in. What's interesting is we make a habit of this, of diagnosing and interrogating our anger. I think God will use that to root out the sinfulness that anger leads to that causes it, and that kind of comes from it. 
See, because the truth is we don't want to be selfishly angry. I think if, if we're in a calm state, we realize, like, I don't want to be angry for things that are, I shouldn't be angry about. It doesn't make sense. It's a waste of energy, if anything. We look at it very practically. So we think we don't want this to happen. But the truth is, in the moment, we always feel justified in our anger. There's never a time when we're angry that we feel like, oh, in the moment, I'm like, I'm being really selfish right now. Like in the moment, we feel like we've been wronged or something's been wronged, something's happened. If we don't make a regular habit of this, God can't work in our hearts to root this stuff out. Because what's interesting is if we want to deal with this selfish anger, if we want to root out selfish anger from our lives, we don't deal with anger. We don't start with anger. We don't need to worry about the anger part. We need to worry about the selfishness part. We need to go after our entitlement. We need to go after our self-centeredness. I think about this all the time. Uh, you know, like, I work during the day. My wife, uh, God bless her, stays home with our four children. And, you know, I'll come home, and let's just say our kids destroy our house and stuff like that. And sometimes I'm like, oh, man, I just want to come home and relax. Had a long day, all that stuff, and I get angry. You know, and that happens over and over and over again. If I don't diagnose it, if I don't interrogate it, it's just going to happen over and over again. But then I start to realize and think about it. You know, this last week, uh, um, Lauren needed to run a bunch of errands. Uh, and so I was home with the kids all day with all four children. And guys, it was awful. <laughs> like, I, I, don't get me wrong, I love my kids. I love them. But it was awful. Like, they never leave you alone. You clean literally all day. You make things for, to eat all day. They're always hungry. It doesn't matter. You get to the end of the day, there's just everything on the floor. It's all there. Like, it is hard what she's doing. And as I begin to think that, it's not that stuff necessarily changes. I still come home to the same situation, but I'm not thinking about myself at the time. I'm thinking about her. I'm realizing, okay, well, she's had a day. And that changes the dynamic there. And so I'm not dealing with the anger. I'm dealing with the root of anger. And that's how we do this in a way that does not sin. So we ask the question, what caused the anger? What was the injustice? What did I do with the anger? Did I resolve the injustice or create more injustice? And what we'll find is as we do this over time, God will root out the sin that leads to anger and the sin that comes from anger in our lives. God will actually make us healthier Christians as we deal and address the pain that, ang that injustice causes in our lives. Then we get to the third imperative, the third thing that Paul tells us to do. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I think a lot of people like to take this very literally. And so they think, well, in the summertime, this is great because I have a little more time. It gets, it gets dark a little bit later, so I have a little more time to fester in this. And if it happens early, I get all day. It's great. And we do this, and we think, okay, but, you know, like we can't go to bed angry, all that stuff. And I'm not saying that that's terrible advice in general, but that's not what Paul is meaning by this. He's speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about a physical length of time. What he's saying is that we need to treat anger seriously and urgently. We need to resolve anger in our hearts with urgency, as though we are trying to fix it before the sun goes down. This isn't about a time limit. This is about urgency. See, the truth is, anger is a necessary emotional response to injustice, but it is not an emotional response that we are we're supposed to remain in. We're not supposed to stay angry. Christians should get angry but they should not stay angry. This isn't something you can put on the back burner. This isn't something you can kind of deal with later. Paul is saying is when you feel angry, deal with it now. Take steps to deal with it and resolve it. And I think the way we resolve it and deal with it is different depending on the kind of anger that we're having. So let's say we go through all of these things and we realize, hey, what I'm feeling is a righteous anger. I, I, there's a righteous and good godly reason for me to feel angry. And there are plenty of righteous and good godly reasons for us to feel angry. We have to ask, well, what does it mean to not let the sun go down on your anger? 
Well, let's look at this. So if we have righteous anger, what I'm saying is the way we don't let the sun go down on our anger is we respond first with prayer and then with just action. And I say prayer there not because that's the Christian thing to do and we should say pray, but because when we're really being honest about righteous anger, we're usually angry about something that is way bigger than anything we could possibly fix. If we're angry about kind of the reality of kids in the foster care system, we should engage in that, but we're not going to fix it. You're not fixing it if you engage in it. So if your first response is that, most likely it's just going to breed more anger. So our first response to any of this stuff is to pray, to come before the God who can actually do something about it. To come and say, God, I need you to do this. I'm angry about this. I'm angry that this is happening. I'm frustrated that this is a reality that we keep on living in. I'm angry and I need you to help. And then after we've done that, then we ask the question, well, what can I do? How can I actively engage in this? And there are so many different ways to lean into it. If you are uh, angry about the refugee crisis in this world, as we should be. The fact that people are displaced from their homes, regardless of all the circumstances around it, is terrible. That is unjust. And we can get mad about it, and we should get mad about it to a point. But if we just stay mad, then nothing gets solved. We first go to prayer, and then we ask, okay, well, how can we get involved with that? Well, you can come and greet refugees at the airport. That's a ministry that we have here. You can help supply them with food and and. Uh, on furniture and things like that as they move in here. You can tutor them. You can give ESL classes. Engage in it. That anger should lead you to that type of involvement in the situation. Allow God to do that in your heart and pursue that. One of the verse that's ha- verses that haunts me all the time is Proverbs 3.27. It says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Truth is, we who are privileged have a lot of good and power that we can do good with. And it says, do not withhold it. So as we engage in this, as we feel this righteous anger, let it push us to prayer and push us to ask, well, what good do we have that we can do and help with others? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It might be justified anger. As you examine this, as you diagnose it and interrogate it, you might come to the conclusion that you should have, in fact, felt angry. That somebody did harm you. Somebody did wrong you. And that, what it means to not let the sun go down in your anger is to seek reconciliation to the best of your ability, to seek reconciliation. Ephesians 4.32 says this. It's right at the end. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So we seek this reconciliation. We don't stew in our anger. We don't let the sun go down in our anger, but we communicate the hurt and seek resolution. And then we realize that what we did in fact have was selfish anger, which is sadly oftentimes probably the most likely scenario, is that just somebody messed with your vision of life When we diagnose that in our hearts, we seek forgiveness. We ask forgiveness from the person we hurt in the midst of it. We confess the selfishness, and we allow God to work through that. Now, there is one last form of anger that I did forget to mention earlier, and I want to put that up there. It's called hanger. Sometimes it's actually a lot simpler than any of what I've talked about. Sometimes you're just hungry, and therefore you're angry, and that's called hanger. And it's a very quick solution to make sure that doesn't Sun go da- the sun doesn't go down on that, and that's to eat. Just eat. Eat something. Tacos preferably, but eat something. It doesn't really matter. Sometimes the solution is right in front of you. <laughs> I say this to my kids all the time. Um, but we need to do these things with urgency. Now, I want to make sure that this is very clear, because when I say urgent, I think a lot of us feel right now. But the truth is, especially with justified anger, there's a good chance 
Like, yeah, if I step on a Lego, or even if somebody says something mean to me, I can resolve that quickly. There are things that we have experienced from other people that cannot be resolved quickly. So when I say be urgent and diligent in seeking reconciliation as a result of injustice, urgent might take years. We need to know that. There are things that people have done to some of the people here that is awful, terrible, and you are justifiably angry in it, and it's going to take years to build that reconciliation. I don't want to belittle that, and I don't want you to hear that, that urgency means that if you've been abused, if you've suffered incredible loss, suffered incredible hurt, all those things, that you need to just deal with it in a day. That is not at all what this means. What it does mean is that we need to be working towards it. It might take years, it might take a long time, but to be working towards it, to come, and, and what's beautiful about that is we can actually come before God and be angry. That is what's so beautiful about this reality, is that you can be as angry as you want with God, whether it's justified or not, and God is patient enough to hear you. He wants those kinds of conversations. And so if you're in the midst of that, allow yourself to be angry and be seeking that kind of reconciliation. And there might be a reality where you seek that kind of forgiveness and the person just, or seek that kind of, kind of forgiveness from them or there's hurt that they've caused you that they're not willing to accept, you can't control the way that they handle it. And that's also a hard reality which you're probably going to be angry about. But we work through that. It takes time and it takes constantly going to God with your anger. But God will work through that and heal in the midst of it. The last imperative, and I think the one that kind of make sense of why this is so important to Paul. Why does Paul bring it up here? Why is Paul stressing this the way he's stressing it and being as forward and overt in the way he's talking about it? It's this. It says, give no opportunity or place for the devil. The reality is that unresolved and chronic anger is an invitation for the devil to move in and do whatever he wants. When we do not deal with anger, when we stay angry, the devil will move in and do whatever he wants. And the truth is, it doesn't matter what type of anger it is. I think that's why it's important to note that Paul doesn't make the distinction. It doesn't matter if it's a righteous anger. It doesn't matter if it's justified anger. It doesn't matter if it's a selfish anger. Yes, we are supposed to get angry. We are supposed to be angry at times. But if we remain angry, it doesn't matter how justified the anger is. The devil will move in and do whatever he wants with it. I think this is one of the great deceptions that we think, that we think that if our anger is righteous, that we can stay in it, that it can just remain in our hearts without it doing any effect or damage. Because ultimately, Satan doesn't care. It doesn't matter what kind of anger it is. If it leaves, it stays unresolved. He will do whatever he wants. Laura Hayes is a psychologist, and I love it when you see psychologists, sociologists come to the same conclusions through kind of the way that they go about doing things that the Bible is talking about. And she was writing kind of on the connection between violent mass shootings and mental health and anger, and she's not belittling the role that mental health plays in it, but what she's saying is there's something deeper going on as we see the rise of just violence in general, this type of violence. She's saying it's not so much because of mental health, but it's because of anger. So if we really want to get to the deeper core of it, is we are, as she puts it, a culture awash in anger. That we are a culture of people that are incredibly angry. They're angry all the time. That if we're honest with ourselves, we are angry a lot. And not just that we get angry, but that we stay angry a lot that we remain in our anger. It's interesting, as you look at it physiologically, what anger does is similar to what happens when we're scared. It puts us into something called the fight-or-flight mode in our brain. That's why when we're angry, we will say things that we would never say when we're not angry, do things that we would never do when we're not angry. It puts us into fight-or-flight mode, which is an actual physiological shift that God gave us to help us survive 
when stressful things happen to us. So, for example, the, in the article that I uh, was talking about this, it gives the example of if you're out on a run in the morning or something like that, and a dog attacks you or tries to attack you. At that moment, your body switches into fight-or-flight mode. And they say that a normal person, if something like that happens to you, this instant, this second interaction can take anywhere from 20 to 60 minutes to calm you down, to get out of this, parasymp- uh, this parasympathetic brain area, to get back to this normal... Sorry, it's the sympathetic nervous system. I'm a theologian. I'm not uh, a doctor. And anger puts us into that. And by nature, when we are in that survival mode, we are not sympathetic, we are not reasonable, we are not compassionate, we are not joyful. We are trying to survive because we feel like we've been harmed. We're scared of the injustice that's happened to us. And if you've kind of studied this reality, and this happens with kids that have been traumatized, people that have been traumatized, the longer you remain and the longer you are, more frequently you are put into this reality, the longer you stay in it. It takes longer to recover out of it. And the easier it is to get into this. And so what's really interesting is that this reality of us getting angry and staying angry has actually changed the physiological makeup of our brain to where we are unreasonably angry all the time. To where things that should never set us off the way they do set us off. We are a culture awash in anger. And this is something that, as I was studying this, I was most surprised by both in my own heart and as kind of observed the realities of this. And you get the root Anger is at the root of so many of these things. For one, the breakdown of the ability to have dialogue and civil disagreement. Honestly, like, this is my personal choice, but I, have just, I just don't watch cable news. Just period. It doesn't matter what angle that's coming from. It, it doesn't matter about that. It's just angry people yelling at each other, saying things that they would never say if they weren't so angry. It's broken down the ability for us to disagree with one another in a civil, compassionate way. I think it's at the root of the rise of exhaustion. That's another thing that I hear all the time and that I feel all the time, that we're just exhausted, we're just tired. We are a tired culture, and I think it's because we're an angry culture. When we are in this frame of mind, we are expending energy that we otherwise would not be expending. We are literally wearing ourselves out with how angry we are. We're an exhausted culture. We have violence that we see. And it's not that violence is new. Violence has been around for ever since sin has been around. But the particular kind of violence that we see, the kind of violence that doesn't make really any other sense than somebody is unreasonably angry. We see that bubble up and, and, and rise. See the decline of compassion in the way we talk about other people. The breakdowns of family. All of these things, at the root of this is anger. And not the fact that we get angry, but that we are staying angry. That we are not allowing God to kind of work in the midst of anger, rooting out the sin, and that we are not seeking to resolve it before the sun goes down. Just the level of angry emotions attached to certain things is baffling, and it should baffle us. But it's because we have trained ourselves in this And ultimately, the devil is doing whatever he wants with it. We have invited him to move in. See, what Paul is saying is that the new life in Christ is not freedom from anger. He's not saying that because we have put on this new self, because we are now newly saved and redeemed in Christ and been brought into this family, that we will be people that never get angry. He's not saying that. What he is saying, though, is that we will not be enslaved to anger. I love what he says earlier, and I think this is helpful for us. Ephesians 4.20, he writes this, he says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you understood this. See, Jesus did get angry. 
He was angry at his disciples for not trusting him that they would get to the other side of the lake when he said they would. He was angry with the money changers for ripping off poor people in the temple. He was angry at God because he was suffering this incredible injustice. Jesus felt anger, but he was never enslaved by it. It never brought about sin. He resolved it quickly and sufficiently. And he left no room for the devil to work in it. What's hard is, as I was even reading this, I realized in my own heart there are so often times when I am enslaved by anger. And I think that as we hear this and as we are confronted by this reality, I think we'll find if we interrogate our own lives, there are times when we're just enslaved by anger. I remember when I came home from uh, Ethiopia this last uh, year, there was a period of time where I would say I was just enslaved by anger. And I think I, I felt like it was okay because I thought it was righteous anger. And then it just turned out that I just became an angry person. I was just angry. You have to root that out. So what I want to encourage you guys, if you feel enslaved by anger, to confess it, to come before God and say, God, I'm angry. Talk about it. Don't bottle it up, but don't let it overcome you. Begin the habit of diagnosing and interrogating your anger. And this will not be hard to do. It will be hard to do, but it will not be hard to find occasion for it. Because you, if you are paying attention and living in this world, get angry every day. Diagnose it and interrogate it. And when you get angry, seek urgent resolution so the devil can't get a foothold. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, thank you that you took upon yourself the great injustice, Lord, that you felt the anger that comes from injustice and then resolved it, God, by defeating death, by defeating Satan, Lord, and overcoming it through your resurrection. Lord, I pray that we would not be an angry people, Lord, that we would be honest in anger, Lord, we would allow... Lord, that your God-given, your, your gift to us to root out injustice and sin and bitterness in our own hearts, Lord, that we would allow that to happen, but God, that you would also make it in a way that does not lead to sin. God, help us to grow in this, Lord. We need you in this because in a world that is filled with anger, God, you need your church to be one of peace. Lord, we pray this in your name.